103. We concluded our study in the book of Esther, and uh, so uh, we're looking at, uh, in a sense, a little bit of more topical uh, message this morning. In fact, I want to look at Psalm 103 this Sunday and the next, the Lord willing. But uh, this morning we want to look at Psalm 103 and the uh, first three or uh, 12 verses, excuse me. Psalm 103. Thanks, thank you for, uh, to Dan for reading that for us and getting us uh, started with this psalm this morning. I don't know about you, but I tend to forget sometimes the benefits of the Lord. You know, so from time to time, I find myself in a season of complaining. Now, I know none of you ever do that, but I do. You know, a complainer is one who feels pain, grief, and discontent with people, with things, or circumstances. His worldview is clouded because he is so busy complaining. A complainer thinks that if people would only come to him about their problems, then everything would be all well, right? If everybody looked at him as the center of the universe, all problems would disappear. We complain because we think God is not doing his work properly. That if he would just trust us with his work, everything would be okay, everything would be solved, and in quicker time as well. Now, if you're one who likes to complain, uh, these times and seasons are heaven for you because there are so many things to complain about. Uh, you can get a whole list together and sit down with someone who else, uh, someone else who loves to listen to people complain, uh, and that's just great. That's heaven on earth, isn't it? Uh, you can begin with the international and national problems. You can cover the spectrum from securing our borders to the unemployment rate in our country. And when you're finished complaining about all those problems, then you can move right in into the most serious problems that we're facing, which all of us have complained about, at least been tempted to complain about, gas and electric bills, you know, those serious things. Now, you better not be complaining about the gas prices because they're pretty good right now, aren't they? But, you know, somebody will probably say it, well, the complainer will say, well, they should be under a dollar, you know. In some places they may be, but you'll have to drive a ways to get there. Or you might complain about the cold weather. You know, that's serious. Or the wet weather. About there's not enough snow when you go deer hunting. Well, that's serious. I know I'm messing with you right now, but complain, 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 don't we? As many of you know, I've recently gone through a number of trials and tribulations, starting with some car trouble and almost called you, JR. I was in Lake Zurich, and my car wasn't running good, and I just about called you. I thought about it, but there was a guy half a mile away from where I was that helped me out, about $1,000 worth. And then I, next week, I hit a seven-point buck. That's where I got my buck. And they, I mean, people have said, you know, bullets are cheaper. It's going to take $4,000 to fix my vehicle, so it wasn't worth that much to begin with, and I just spent $1,000 on it. Does it sound like I'm complaining? <laughs> and then I heard that one of our church family passed away, and 
That would mean funeral preparation and the stress of finding a different vehicle, selling the damaged one for more than a handful of chicken feed. And top it all off, my back went out and didn't come back until later this uh, week. Feeling a little bit better this morning. So as I was thinking about some of these things and thinking about the message this morning, I thought about Psalm 103. Because it seems that Psalm 103 has answers, and many of the Psalms, in fact, do, has an- have answers for difficulties and discouragement when it comes our way. And when I read Psalm 103 in verse 1, I immediately was rebuked and humbled and taught again at As I've looked at this psalm, memorized portions of it in the past, but you know the Scripture has a way of quickly pointing out just how messed up we are and then pointing us in the right direction. And I trust it will do that this morning. You know, Psalm 103 was written by King David. It was such an encouragement, and sometimes we can come away reading uh, reading this psalm with the feeling that we've been in a gold mine, with every small, with a very small bucket, or we've been trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hydrant, and I want to offer you just a few drops of blessing, a few nuggets this morning from this great psalm, and I hope it, you'll go back and go back and get a bigger drink or get a bigger bucket and go back to this psalm and and find what's there. But this message is especially meant for all of us who have found ourselves complaining in the past, those who are of you who are presently complaining, and those of you that are planning to complain in the future. The rest of you can leave right now. No one's leaving. Apparently I'm at home with fellow complainers. Or at least men and women who acknowledge the temptation, the desire to complain. Remember, we, uh, we said that we complain because we experience grief, we experience pain or discontent over people, over places, over things. We complain because we don't believe God is really in charge and he's not working out his plan that we think he should work out and the way he should work it out. But David wrote this song to be sung by the congregation in the tabernacle. He wrote from a humble heart because of his awareness of who God is. And I want us to look at this psalm today and and even, the Lord willing, next Sunday. And we'll see that in spite of all of his problems and with his countrymen, with the national politics, uh, politics and with his own sin, David is a man who knows who God is. He's sensitive. He's tender. He has a sense of the presence of God. And as we read his writings, David gives us a sense of awe. I feel that when David came into the presence of God, he threw himself down before him because he understood himself in light of who God was. Sometimes we're pretty pretty boastful, pretty proud of ourselves. And we think we've got it made, we've got all the answers. And yet, when you look at yourself in the light of what who God is, you can't help but Realize you need to throw yourself down before him and humble yourself before him. Many people don't get that. But David was often tempted to complain, especially about his enemies. He often prayed something like this. He said, Lord, I'd just appreciate it if you just wipe my enemies off the face of the earth. 
You know, we feel like that sometimes. Lord, just take all this away. Just wipe those, those terrorists out, off the earth. Just wipe them off. We feel that way. And hopefully, though, after we study this psalm a little bit together, we'll be counting more the blessings that we have and the benefits we have instead of comp- complaining. Count, are you counting this morning or are you complaining? Now, the psalm breaks down into four sections. First of all, we'll see the call to bless the Lord. Verse 1 and 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. David says because he's well aware what we normally forget, he's well aware of God's benefits. Isn't it amazing how nervous we get sometimes about certain areas of our life? Maybe you don't ever get nervous about anything. You're always cool, calm, and collected, but this is not the case with many people, and I'm sure there are some here today who are struggling with this because I know I do at times. We struggle with complaining, therefore, because it's because we forget. David lists for us five of God's benefits, all five of these benefits which God does uh, uh, are listed here in the present tense. In other words, our God, the great I am, is always capable and willing to do the things, these things for his children. So we first of all come to the reminder of God's personal blessings. Verse three, for my days are consumed with like smoke and my bones, excuse me, wrong verse, wrong chapter. Over here, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I want you to notice there, first of all, a covering for all of our sins. God is available, willing, and able to forgive us our sins and our iniquities, and not only that, but to relieve us from the guilt that accompanies them. For 1,500 years, a lamb was used by the Israelites as a symbol of the final Passover lamb that would take away the sins of every man, woman, and child and never hold those sins against them again. Only the Holy One of Israel, now revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ, could accomplish that. He is the God who said, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. John, the apostle, tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All we have to do is agree with God that your sin is in fact sin. And then the Deliverer, the Savior of the world, can deliver you from sin, from the guilt you feel because of your sin, and from the power that sin has over you. Secondly, we find here a healing of all of our diseases. Isaiah 53 says that because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the chastisement of all of us was placed on him, and with his stripes we are healed. We Christians know that when Jesus Or when we came to Jesus, healing definitely occurred in our spirits. Our spirits, which were dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, are now cleansed and renewed and brought to life. And we know, too, that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we came into that relationship, He filled our hearts with the Spirit of God. He gave us His peace, His joy, His wholeness, regardless of the outward uh, circumstances and what may appear there. This is 
how we are healed spiritually. Now, God is entirely capable of healing physically as well. He's capable of healing everyone in this room. You got an ache or a pain this morning? You got, a, you got something physical that's wrong? Many of us do. He's capable of doing that as long as it will enhance his plan of redemption for this time and space. Now, we don't understand why God would heal one man spiritually and another man physically like he did the lepers, we talked about in Sunday school, but in doing so fits his plan of redemption. Our life is not our own. We are bought with a price. We know that God will accomplish healing because he's in charge of the affairs of men. In John chapter 9, we read that Jesus healed a blind beggar, and yet there were many blind people that he did not heal in those days. God wants us to trust him, to allow him the freedom to heal whomever he wants to heal, because in the end, he will heal all of us physically, if we know Christ is our Savior. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more tears, there will be no sorrow, there will be no pain, there will be no more death. We will be totally healed. God pardons our sins and he heals all of our diseases. Thirdly, there's a benefit of a redeeming from the pit. When we look here at this word in verse 4, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, the word destruction there is the meaning of a pit. Here God is pictured as a kinsman who redeems a relative from a life of slavery, which that relative entered because of debt. And what a beautiful picture of our Lord who purchased us out of the slave market of sin. And God can redeem us from a life of decay and hopelessness and helplessness. And he can bring us back to spiritual life again. Psalm 40 and verse 2 says, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Maybe you've heard someone say this. That's the pits. You heard that, haven't you? You said it probably. Or I'm in the pits. Someone even wrote a book entitled, If Life is a Bowl of Cherries, Why Am I Always in the Pits? See, that's what David is talking about. At one time, and some of you remember Corey Tinboom, and she was imprisoned during the war in, in Germany in a concentration camp. Now that would have been in the pits place of misery and sickness and death. And her sister, Becky, said to her, this is such a pit, Corey, such a pit of evil. And she replied, Corey replied, there is no pit so deep that Jesus isn't deeper. He's able to lift us up out of the pit. Thank God for that. David goes on to say that this God who pardons our iniquities, who heals all of our diseases, who redeems us from the pit, is the one who, fourthly, gives us a crowning of compassion. Again, verse 4, there's a crowning of compassion. He crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. As the king of Israel, David wore a crown of dignity and honor. And after we establish a relationship with the Holy One of Israel, the great I Am, he crowns us with invisible crowns of kindness and compassion. We usually think God will punish us every time we make a mistake. But that's not what it says here, does it? 
God knows that we are in the process of maturing. He continually crowns us with these gifts of compassion and kindness which affect our physical, emotional, and spiritual lives. And David continues, not only does God pardon us, heal us, redeem us, and crown us, but he also satisfies us with good things. There's a satisfying with good things. Verse 5. Verse 5, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things. Goes on to say that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I'm reminded right away of the passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. It says, he giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but... They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, have you ever watched, of course you have, children playing? You know, children, when they're playing, they're really oblivious to what's going on in the world, aren't they? They're not not concerned about the politics and the elections and all that kind of stuff. They're just, they're just playing. But you know what they really get excited about? Mud puddles, worms, flowers, a million other things that we, could, we don't even notice. They have so much energy and we get tired just watching them. Well, God says that's how he'll make us too, so that our youth shall be renewed like an eagle. The eagle here is pictured as a picture of vigor and beauty and freedom. I hope you never get over seeing the eagles in this area which you live here. And every time you see one, think about this. I do. I grew up in an area of the country where an eagle was seldom, if ever, seen. Out in the plains of Kansas, not many trees, not many places for an eagle to nest. And so we didn't see him. And so it's, it's, it's something amazing for us to, to see him. We'll, we'll point them out every time we see them when we're driving down the road. Look there. It's an eagle. You travel around, and that is if you don't stay cooped up in your house all day, you probably will see an eagle soaring overhead, maybe on a daily basis in some places here But every time I see one, I can't help but think of the Bible references to them. And then David goes on to remind himself of some of the Lord's righteous deeds. The reminder of the Lord's righteous deeds in verse 6 and verse 7. It says, The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. He talks really about four things here in these verses. Number one, the God we serve is righteous. His very nature is righteous. He continually does righteous deeds. In the book of Judges, Deborah says, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless ye the Lord. They that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord, even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel. 
She is singing God's praises after he had destroyed the 900 iron chariots of Jabin, the king of Canaan, and Sisera, his commander-in-chief, who who come to the battle against the Israelites. And the Canaanites forced the Israelites, who had no weapons except Jehovah, to go up to Mount Tabor. And God told his people to rest there, and he would take care of them. He caused a violent rainstorm in the mountains. The floodwaters rushed down into the dry creek beds and flooded the iron chariots and killing all the Canaanites. And Caesarea escaped. He hid in a tent and he fell asleep. And when he slept, Jael, the wife of Heber, drove a tent peg through his head. You say, well, that just happened. No, it didn't just happen. I can't help but think the providence of God again. And Deborah here praises Jehovah's righteous act, acts toward his people. The God we serve is righteous. He's also a God of judgment. David says that God executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. Israel has had a history of being oppressed from the days of the Egyptian captivity. And today Israel is oppressed by the nations all around her and by the nations of the earth. Christians have been oppressed since the days of Jesus. And until recently, we certainly have a sense that in our country, we haven't sensed this in our country until recently, I guess what I'd say, but, you know, believers in Russia even today, there's believers there, and they're oppressed. They're oppressed in Africa. They're oppressed in some of the South American countries. We see oppression on every side, but God promises that one day he's going to deal with this oppression and he's going to vindicate his people because it says in Psalm 9 and verse 7, but the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment and he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed a refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. The God we serve is righteous. He's the God of judgment. And we notice here also it speaks of the God of Moses. Verse 7, he made his ways known unto Moses. God first made himself known to Moses in the burning bush incident where he identified himself as I am that I am. Later, God met and spoke to and gave his laws to Moses at Mount Sinai. And and David says that God's ways are quite evident. So great is his loving kindness toward them that fear him. You know, in our day, Jesus certainly made himself known to us as well. He teaches us by his Holy Spirit, by the New Testament, and by his faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is among us. He's walking with us to bless us with his benefits. And then we find that he's the God of the children of Israel. David reminds himself and his congregation that the Lord made his acts clear to the sons of Israel. The children of Israel. For instance, you remember the pillar of smoke by day, the fire, pillar of fire by night, the water out of the rock, the manna, the meat that was all provided by the gracious and loving hand of God, their Father, the one and only true and living God, the ever-present I Am. And we are just as blessed. 
For Jesus, the Son of God, made his way known to the apostles and then in turn has known his way through the Spirit and his word in every age until he comes. Then we have also a reminder here. David reminds us of the Lord's character in verses 8 through 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Our God is a loving and gracious God. He's compassionate toward us. And we notice the the verbs here are in the present tense. Our God is always like this. It's not that he was this way, but he is now, and he will be. You remember, Nehemiah depended on the same compassionate God when he prayed in the midst of a disobedient people some 850 years later. In Nehemiah chapter 1 We recall that he said, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the earth, yet will I gather from thence and will bring them into a place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let not thine ear or let now thy ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, Thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. The same love and the same compassion was shown to us when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And we have a clear detail of that love recorded by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses or dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceedingly rich riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. David says that God who walks among us is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. God is not angry with an unrighteous anger, the kind of anger that breaks out like a flash of lightning. No, he's slow to anger because he wants us to come to know him. God was slow to anger toward Pharaoh. He was slow to anger in Noah's day. He was slow to anger toward Sodom and Gomorrah. He was slow to anger to the Israelites during the wilderness journey. He was slow to anger during the days of the judges. He was slow to anger in David's day, but God does have a righteous anger. One day his righteous justice must be served. And despite of all these wonderful examples of how slow God uh, is to anger, David tells the Israelites, don't push God too far. He says he will not chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. 
Not long after this psalm was written, civil war broke out in Israel and the 12 tribes were split up. This followed the Assyrian captivity and then the Babylonian captivity and then came the years of silence all the way through to John the Baptist. And I'm always amazed how many people continue in sin because they foolishly think that God will never bring them to justice. I'm thinking of my son. And we would warn him about things, don't do that. Well, nothing's happened to me yet. I, nothing's happened. I, I'm, I'm okay, you know. You know, jumping off a roof or doing something, you know, very stupid and dangerous. Nothing's happened to me yet. And that's the way people think sometimes about their sin. God is slow to anger. He's, he may not be judging you now, but there will be a day of judgment. People foolishly think that because God is a God of love, He can do nothing but love them. And that is totally to misunderstand who God is. God is a God of love, but He's also a God of righteousness and judgment. David looks back on all that God has done for him, and he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. But as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Now, I want you to notice there's a little catch here. His mercy is toward who? Them that fear him. God deals with men and women who come into a relationship with him. There is therefore now no condemnation to who? To them which are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Aren't you glad that God has not dealt with us according to our sins? Genesis chapter 1 says that God spoke and the world came into being. God could destroy us with the mere sound of his voice because we have sinned against him. Everyone in the world deserves to be in hell right now. But God in his love through Christ is saving people from hell because he loves us. I have to admit it's difficult to understand that kind of love sometimes, but we who are his enemies are now his sons and daughters, and that is an amazing benefit from God for which we should bless him, thank him, praise him. We chase after our sins because we don't believe that God has really forgiven us. And finally, David says that God does forgive us. He takes away our sins. Verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. He kind of uses this figure of speech to describe just how far God has removed our transgressions. If you start heading east, when do you get there? You never do. Is there a place called east? Where you can hide? No, we never get there because east is always ahead of us. And how far... That's how far God has said he will remove our sins from us. 
And then you know what we do. We chase after our sins because we don't believe that God has truly forgiven us. We want to wrestle our sins back from God's forgiving hand. We want to rehearse all of our sins again because we feel guilty about what God has already forgiven. And listen, when Jesus comes into your life and takes your sins away, let them go. Keep your hands off. Allow God to take your sins far to the east, as far to the west as he wants, and thank God that he's done so. Now, what's the cure for a complaining spirit? How can we be set free from discontent, from not trusting the Lord to be at work in our lives, in this church, in this community, in this world? David tells us that what the cure is. Establish a personal relationship with a loving and gracious God. Talk to your, uh, talk, uh, to your, uh, your soul to remind yourself not to forget all of God's benefits. Remind yourself of the Lord's blessings physically, emotionally, spiritually in your lives. Remind yourselves of the Lord's righteous deeds toward you. Remind yourselves of the Lord's loving and gracious nature and how you stand holy and blameless before the Son. Father, because of his son. David expresses his thanks to God for all of his mercies. And we should express our thanks to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit for all of his mercies. And this is the way we can count our blessings. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And not complain, but count. Not complain about your circumstances, but count your blessings. Are you counting or are you complaining this morning? Let's pray. Father.